Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smeza de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Paseo Podcast. After starting off last week's show by wishing everyone a happy new year, I mentioned how I was hesitant to do so because I didn't want to jinx us. Well, I should have listened to my gut on that one because Ish has gone down since our last episode. We're going to cover some news in a moment, but uh, first I wanted to share and start off our episode with uh, some big news for the podcast. We finally started a YouTube channel, y'all. So uh, listening to episodes of the podcast is great, but uh, watching them, you might get something more out of that. So please subscribe, leave a good rating and comment if you can. We'd love to see that. But we really wanted to give you all a chance to watch our interviews, most importantly. My hope is that this makes what we are trying to do here with the podcast more accessible for Boricuas and others all around the world. Right now we have two videos up. Our channel trailer is the first one. It's about a minute long and was made by our videographer, Josue Ortiz. So shout out to Josue for chopping that up. And our other video is our interview from last week with Constanza Eliana Chinea on decolonizing wellness. So still working on a schedule of when each week videos are going to be uploaded, but for now expect to see them Mondays and Tuesdays. When you get the chance, check out those videos and please like and subscribe because believe it or not, that makes a world of difference and it really, really helps what we're trying to do here with this project. And of course, if YouTube isn't your thing, keep up with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Paseo Podcast uh, or, you know, listen to the podcast like you're doing right now. You can also pitch a story or volunteer with the podcast by reaching out to us on our website, paseomedia.org. Another thing before we get into the news, our guest for this week's episode is none other than the Alderwoman of the 33rd Ward, Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez. If you're hearing the term Alderwoman for the first time, an Alderwoman, Alderman, Alderperson is a member of a municipal assembly or council, normally at the local level. Here in Chicago, we have 50 Alderpersons that make up our city council and they collectively represent the Windy City's 77 neighborhoods. This will be the second older person we've had on the show, the first being Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa from the 35th Ward. Give that episode a listen if you haven't already, but not right now though, because you're going to want to stick around for our interview with Alderwoman Rodriguez Sanchez. We cover a lot of ground in our conversation, including what life was like for her growing up in Puerto Rico, her experiences and the contrast she saw in her organizing both on La Isla and here in Chicago, the reason why she migrated to Chicago, policy she is pushing for in the Chicago City Council, her reaction to the coup attempt at the U.S. Capitol last week, and a whole lot more. But before we get into our interview, let's cover some news. Whew, had to take a deep breath here because my goodness, like I mentioned at the top of the show, there was so much news that has happened since our last episode, but we're going to try and get through some of them. Uh, we're not going to hit on everything, but we're going to try and get through things as quickly as possible so we can get right into our interview with Rosanna. First, some good news. Friend of the show, Jesse Fuentes, she was on an earlier episode in the early days of the podcast, actually talked about the PR agenda and Promesa. Well, 
She uh, dropped some big news in recent weeks. She got engaged. So shout out to her and her fiance. In white people cosplaying as people of color news, it was reported last week that Natasha Lysia Ora Bannon, a prominent, more like infamous now, human rights attorney spent more than a decade pretending to be a Colombian and Puerto Rican. According to PRISM, for years, prominent human rights attorney Natasha Lysia Ora Bannon, I'm not even going to try and put an accent on her name because she was masquerading here. Uh, she positioned herself as an advocate for Latinx communities, most recently identifying as a Puerto Rican woman from New York determined to aid the island and bring attention to the economic and humanitarian crises produced by colonization. The report goes on to say Bannon is a white woman who grew up in Georgia. Since at least 2006, she accepted opportunities expressly intended for Latinas and other people of color. Now, at the time of these reports, she was the senior counsel at Latino Justice, Puerto Rican Legal Defense and Education Fund. She has since turned in her resignation, but the damage has been done. Look, I'm for allyship. I really appreciate seeing people who aren't part of an ethnicity and culture fight for issues, getting involved in the struggle and advocating for issues that matter most for, for people in said communities. But this is far from that. Natasha is no better than Jessica Krug, a white scholar who outed herself last year as white just before she was uh, going to be exposed for presenting herself as Afro-Boricua. She's no better than Hillary Baldwin, lying about being Spanish and growing up in Spain when in reality she is a white woman from Boston. This is no better than Rachel Dolezal, Kelly Keen Sharp, and the list goes on and on and on with these nonsensical racial fraudsters caught in POC cosplay for personal gain. Natasha publicly identified as a Latina for years, and the kicker here in reports is that the specifics of her identity and origin story shifted over time. In fact, here's Natasha claiming to be Puerto Rican in a Voice Latina video. Yo soy Natasha Liceora Banan, and I'm a cultural mix of Puerto Rican, Colombian, Italian, and some other. Oh, a cultural mix. Interesting. Now, here is the reality, people. Historical public documents indicate that Banan's, Banan's, however she wants to say her name these days, her paternal family arrived in the United States from Ireland and Italy, and her Italian grandmother arrived in the U.S. in 1912. In a statement to PRISM, Bannon said she has identified as Latina for as long as she can remember because it was the culture she was raised in, even though court records from 1994 when Bannon was 17 years old identified her as white, non-Hispanic. I don't know about you all, but when I was 17, I kind of had a better sense of who I was. I don't think I was out here saying I'm of this identity or this culture, um... It was pretty clear when I was growing up that I, that I was Puerto Rican. So keep this in mind. There was no mention of Puerto Rican origins there. And with historical records, that's the census, that's naturalization records, that's court filings, this white woman still decided to pretend to be a woman of color. Woo! I can smell the stank of privilege from here. But what really angers me is the semantic gymnastics these people will perform in order to justify their lies. When Natasha was aware she was going to be unmasked, she wrote on social media that she was racially white, quote-unquote racially white, and that her quote-unquote cultural heritage and her identification as a Latina come from who her family quote-unquote has been 
and not where her quote unquote ancestors were from. Let's back up a little bit and hear Natasha explain who she is, share a little bit about her, her background, her culture. Um, here we go. Yo soy Natasha Licior Banan, and I'm a cultural mix of Puerto Rican, Colombian, Italian, and some other. Mm, some other is right. See how she said culturally there? That's a key word. She's trying to give herself just enough wiggle room in her lie to backtrack when it's convenient for her. Now, if anyone watches the show Lucifer or is in a relationship, they will tell you that an omission is just as bad as an outright lie. What Natasha did here is a great example of what white privilege will do if unchecked. Think about all the amazing Latina women who could have gotten the opportunities granted to her. Just let that sink in for a second, because Latinas account for less than 2% of American lawyers and the opportunities available to them in the predominantly white legal field are very limited. Natasha not only stole her identity, she stole opportunity from women of color, and for that, there is no forgiveness. She should be ashamed of herself and laughed out the door of any legal organization she is, was, or plans to be a part of. Not going to spend any more time on her, but I will link the PRISM article in the show notes if you want to learn more. Speaking of problematic people, another big news story was Mia Pancero, aka Soho Karen, who attacked a 14-year-old black teenager after falsely accusing him of stealing her iPhone in New York City. When, keep in mind, in reality, she left her phone in an Uber. If only there was some way, some way, some type of technology to track your lost phone. Oh, wait, there is. Uh, so, uh, well, you know, if that exists, why is this 22-year-old woman deciding to profile and attack a young man who had nothing to do with her negligence? It's beyond me. Actually, we know why she did this. We know why. This was a clear case of racial profiling and internalized racism, and Soho Karen accused this teenager because he was young, black, and male. But don't tell Mia that her actions were racist. Lionshare News found Soho Karen in California, where she is from, and she had this to say when asked about her actions. Are you concerned about, uh, about the warrant for your arrest? Why did you do it? You know? He's young. Do you, I mean, do you do you have any regrets? I'm actually 22, so I don't know what the problem is. Here. No, but but and he, I'm also he, Puerto Rican, so thank you. Oh, have so you, okay. Take care of yourself. Does that justify what you did? And then she proceeds to slam the door on the reporter. So she said two interesting things there to defend her actions. One, that she was 22, so she didn't know what the issue was, and two, that she's Puerto Rican. As if somehow either of those excuse her of what she did. I'm sorry, but 22 means you're an adult. Now, clearly she's made bad life decisions. She continues to make bad life decisions. And I know I've made mistakes in my 20s, but, you know, I don't think racially profiling someone was one of them. Um, and racially profiling anyone is a totally different ball game. And trying to hide behind your identity to defend your racist actions is just plain ignorance and stupidity. I'm surprised she didn't say something like, you know, some of my best friends are black. I mean, that's the equivalent of, of what she just said to that reporter from Lion Share News. Mia doubled down on being Puerto Rican as an excuse um, to defend her actions in her interview with Gail King on CBS. Let's listen to that. 
I wasn't racial profiling whatsoever. I'm a woman. I'm Puerto Rican. I'm like a woman of color. I'm, I'm Italian, Greek, Puerto Rican. You keep saying you're Puerto Rican. Does that mean that you can't be racist because you're saying you're a woman of color? Is that what you mean? Exactly. Well, I, I would disagree that people of color can be racist too. Gail King with a rebuttal. She also went on to do uh, in that same interview with Gail King. Uh, she uh, essentially had like a, a talk to the hand shushing moment, uh, basically trying to shut Gail King up, uh, which was telling. I mean, because that shows exactly what she thinks of the black community. She thinks so little of black people that she feels entitled to disrespect them. Someone should remind her that Puerto Ricans are black. Our people are a mix of African, indigenous, and European roots, but I doubt she even knows that based on what I've seen. I mean, come on. Saying you're Puerto Rican does not absolve anyone from being anti-black. Not in action, not in thought, neither does being married to people, having friends, or kids that are black. Ultimately, there's no excuse for me as actions, plain and simple. And if the roles were reversed and it were a black man accusing and assaulting someone, there is a very high chance the response and outcome would have been violent, if not deadly. Our children and our communities deserve better. Since assaulting the teenager in New York, Soho Karen has been charged with four felonies related to the incident. They are attempted robbery, endangering the welfare of a child, attempted grand larceny, and attempted assault. And speaking of charging people with crimes, on El Dia de los Tres Reyes, of all days, there was an insurrection, a coup attempt at the U.S. Capitol as the Electoral College votes were beginning to be certified, which would have officially named Joe Biden the President of the United States. Now, people are accountable for their own actions, and this seditious conspiracy and domestic terrorism shows you exactly how dangerous the rhetoric that pits people against one another can be. This assault on democracy left five people dead, including law enforcement. These people should be ashamed of themselves, and so too should the Republicans for convincing and riling up rioters, who trust them as credible sources of news, convincing them that somehow they were patriots for this violence. And the worst part of this is, is that this is all based in fabricated and false claims of voter fraud. Watching this live, I was so frustrated seeing how the media and law enforcement were acting during this assault, especially compared to the BLM protests of the summer. The media kept calling them protesters over and over again, and it took them what felt like forever to call these people what they were, domestic terrorists. Law enforcement seemed overwhelmed when the FBI and social media sent warning signs that a threat of some kind was about to go down on this day. Comparing this to the civil unrest we saw over the summer, not once did I see a fist fly from a protester to a cop. Now, I'm not saying this didn't happen, I just haven't seen footage of it. What we did see during the civil unrest was police officers uh, hurling fists at protesters, driving through them with cars, snatching them up in unmarked vans and driving away to who knows where. Compared to the assault on the Capitol, it felt like every piece of footage I saw involved rioters assaulting police officers, both inside and outside of the building. We also saw police officers on the other side of things, opening barricades, allowing the mob to gain access to the Capitol, and even taking selfies with the rioters. I mean, it was heartbreaking to see, but this is America, and everyone saw how one part of America is treated compared to the other. And what happened to all this Blue Lives Matter stuff? from conservatives? What happened to all these Blue Lives Matter stuff from Trump supporters? Where is the leadership? That seemed to have gone out the window. 
Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had good commentary on this. Let's play that video. I don't want to hear or see the Republican Party talk about blue lives ever again. This was never about safety for them. It was always a slogan. Because if they actually cared about rule of law, they would speak up when people break the law. They would speak up. They would enforce fairness and equity, but they don't give a damn about the law. They don't give a damn about order. They don't give a damn about, about safety. They give a damn about white supremacy. They care about preserving the social order and the mythology of whiteness than the, than the grandeur of our democracy. That's what they care about. They lust for power more than they care about democracy. That's what those people did when they voted to overturn the results of our free and fair elections. And you can barely call them that with the amount of voter suppression that they have engaged in across the country. It is generous, to say the least, to call them that. And so with all of the rules rigged in their favor, the Electoral College is built on a compromise with slavers. The Senate is rigged in their favor. Gerrymandered districts are rigged in the Republicans' favor. This presidency and the law-breaking and the pardons of people who have betrayed our country, all of it rigged in their favor, and they can't even win with the whole deck stacked with them. They can't even win with the deck stacked in their favor. And so what they are willing to do is set a match and light our entire democracy on, fi on fire so that, they can, so that they can uphold the social order of white supremacy. That's what this is about. Straight up. This is about thinking that if an election doesn't reinforce your power, then you believe it is fundamentally illegitimate. Some fire takes from AOC, and she brings up a lot of good points, from Blue Lives Matter just being a slogan, to the fact that conservatives in this country have the deck stacked in their favor. There are two Americas we are living in, and one America feels as though if their white and class supremacy is not reinforced, then the process must be illegitimate. Check out the double standard here. As of this recording, over 30 people have been arrested with federal charges compared to the hundreds arrested in D.C. during the summer protests. What does that tell us? We can't let these people get away with an attempted coup, and we could very well see people do just that. The FBI said they needed help finding people. But dang, these people were gloating on social media and doing media interviews during and after the attack, and you only have a small fraction of arrests made? Get the heck out of here. This was not done for some fight for racial justice, equity, or civil rights. This was done because people didn't get their way. This was done to overthrow a government. Nooses were set up, pipe bombs were planted, and handcuffs were brought into the Capitol. I know we've covered her in previous episodes, but compare this event to someone like Puerto Rican activist Lolita Lebron. She stormed the House of Representatives in 1954 and fired shots at the ceiling as a way to bring attention to the facts that America, who had a revolution to become independent of colonial rule, was perfectly fine invading and having a colony of its own. 
she was sentenced to 49 plus years and ended up serving 25 of those. We better see similar charges brought up against these domestic terrorists. I hope there is not a double standard here, but it would not surprise me if that was the case. For now, we do know that Donald Trump has been impeached for the role he played in all this, becoming the only president in history to be impeached twice. Hopefully, the Republican Senate does the right thing and removes this guy from office. Now, I know he's only there for a few days, but look what he's been able to do with only two weeks left in his administration. We're actually going to get into this a little bit more uh, in our interview today with Alderwoman Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez. Um, we're going to get her thoughts on this and more. Um, so, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's get right to it. Let's jump into the interview. Bienvenidos a todos. This is the Paseo Podcast. It is Thursday, January 7th, but really it doesn't really matter because it's a podcast. You're listening to this whenever, wherever you are. So just happy that you're spending this time with us and that you downloaded this episode. We have a very special guest today. We have the Alderwoman of the 33rd Ward here in Chicago, Rosana Rodriguez. Rosana, or Alderwoman Rodriguez, welcome to the Paseo Podcast. How are you today? Thank you. Call me Rosana. Call me Rosana. <laughs> ah, okay, perfect. Okay, everybody heard that. I have permission. All right. Um, Rosa- Not everybody has permission. <laughs> <laughs> oh, perfect. Okay, VIP status. Um, Rosana, what should our audience know about you? I grew up in Puerto Rico. I was born in San Juan. I was raised in Umacao. I am from the East Coast of Puerto Rico. I was um, raised in a beautiful neighborhood called Mariana. Um, which is a mountain uh, right on the coast of Puerto Rico. Uh, my father is a community organizer, so I grew up around uh, community organizing. And I learned very early in my life that in order to be able to have access to the resources that belong to us, we have to claim them together. So I learned that from my father and from all my neighbors in my community. Um, and, and I think that that has sort of given me the, the map to continue to move uh, throughout life. Hmm. So, so you would really credit your your family, your father, for like igniting this passion for organizing and public service. Yeah, I would I would say so, and and mostly it it is just how you learn things work, right? Mm-hmm. Like when I was six years old, um, there was no water in my community. There was mm-hmm. a drought, and um, we had a a, a navy base. Uh, a U.S. Navy base that uh, was established in the town of Ceiba, which is uh, very close to Macau. So the water from our our community, the water that would come from the river that serves our community, started being redirected and used by mostly by the the Navy base. And they would use it to like fill a pool that they had there. Like we, we didn't have, we didn't have water to like, cover our basic needs, but they had a pool and they were, were like constantly filling it out. Um, and so we would have uh, rationing of our water and we would have water maybe for an hour a day. And in that hour, you needed to fill as many containers as you could find. Um, to this day, there are still people in my community, some of my cousins, uh, that keep uh, plastic gallons of milk and like any plastic 
sort of container uh, just in case that that we run out of water, right? And it, you know, it, growing up like that and knowing that you live in an island that is very rich in that resource, it was it was mind blowing that you would have to just exist without water. So my community organized, and my father was one of the leaders of the movement to try to get our water back. Um, and it took a very it took a very long time. And I remember going to protest. I remember making my little signs. I remember getting in in the school bus and going in front of the water works authority and picketing. And uh, and I think that was a really big lesson for me very early in life. Right, like we did not have access to a basic service, to a basic resource. Hmm. Um, and, and the government was willing to take that away from us. So we had to come together and we had to fight in order to get that back. And after that, I mean, living in a colony of the United States, everything was a fight. There was nothing that was readily available for you to take advantage of unless you were a wealthy person. And I was not. Hmm. <laughs> so, um, so yes, definitely the, the idea that you have to fight and you have to organize and you have to come together with with people who have the same interests, right, um, mm -hmm. in order to be able to achieve goals is is yeah. at the core of who I am. That's an interesting story. I, I think um, just thinking back three years ago to the Huracan, Maria and Irma, I think that that's what I mean. People living in Puerto Rico, I mean, you growing up there, of course, understanding the fragility of the infrastructure that exists there. Um, but just thinking about the magnifying glass that was put on it, um, especially for people in the diaspora of just how fragile things are from traveling from one pueblo to another to access to, to clean water, uh, food. It, it, was heart, it was heartbreaking to see. So it's, it, it's interesting hearing that story because, you know, even though a lot of time may have passed, you know, things oddly still tend to remain the same. Um, so it, it's very heartbreaking to see, but really cool to, to see that at a young age. You were already out there on buses, making signs, organizing. Um, that, was a very, that was a very long time ago, right? Yeah. I'm 42 years old now. Uh, I mean, but... that, not that, not that old, not that old, <laughs> not, not, old. No, not, not that Give yourself some credit here. <laughs> Well, I am. I love this 43. I mean, I have lived a lot and, yeah. and I and I am very proud of each one of those years and what I have learned. Um, but I would say that my community, when when I started getting involved in the organizing in my community, I was about six years old that I, I mean, you know, I, when I started to become aware of what ha what was happening, mm -hmm. right, that 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 there was that there, there, there were things that were being organized in um when when maria happened um i i was actually a teacher at pedro albizu campos when maria passed i was the i didn't know uh, that oh no right, no i didn't know that right there on paseo boricua Yes. Yeah. So I was an integrated arts teacher in uh, Pedro Albizu Campos High School. And I remember the day that they said that um, that it was inevitable that the hurricane was going to um, to touch Puerto Rico because I, I remember hearing it's a category five. And, and I lived in Puerto Rico until I was 30 years old. So I lived through Hugo and I lived through George's and those were category four hurricanes and they caused a lot of destruction. Uh, we were without power for, in, in Hugo, I think 
we were without power for a month and a half um with or maybe two months and with george's at, at least one month without power um so i knowing how fragile the the infrastructure was i knew that there was going to be you know a lot of loss of life mm -hmm. and i was not wrong but what i am going to say is that the reason why my community survived is because of 40 years of organizing mm -hmm. that had preceded the arrival of that hurricane right like yeah. my community um my community has a, a space um where we celebrated the festival de la pana every every uh year i was i was six years old when that when that um when that festival started and it's still going um and there were the facilities the kitchen because we used to cook and we used to sell um all sorts of dishes made out of pana breadfruit and and because those facilities were there and because people already were used to cooking for one another and because there was space and there were networks people came together right away after the hurricane and started cooking and started making sure that they took inventory of what were the needs of the community um the the community has a relationship with the school of social work in the university of puerto rico the umacao campus and those students came right away and started helping uh doing assessments around the community it was like it was such a huge mobilization but it happened because of the structures that had been created the social structures that had been created for decades right mm -hmm. communities that didn't have that suffered a lot because the government didn't show up not yeah. the local government or the federal government right so mm -hmm. it was the people on their own um so community yeah. organizing have proven to be the only way to ensure the well-being of people permanently yeah definitely i mean I, i think a great example um is looking at uh the 2019 uh protests like what a what an awesome master class in democracy where you could see people organizing at a one million boricuas there on the capitol just like Let's get this ass out of out of office, um, and that's just the people that could make it there. So, and I don't know that that would have been fully possible without the infrastructure built between organizers on La Isla. Um, that actually, I want to transition. Um, I want to transition transition a little bit uh, to just the comparison between organizing and activism on La Isla compared to uh, that of organizing and activism here in Chicago. So you have experience in both, obviously. You're, you're an older woman here. You're a member of the city council in Chicago. Uh, I've been a part of a lot of organizing on La Isla. Um, and your experiences, I mean, how would you compare the two? Are there similarities, major differences? I think there is a lot of difference everywhere. Like even in Puerto Rico, from mm -hmm. one place to the other, you're going to find lots of differences in terms of how people organize. I think that um, the, I have, there's always been a little bit of a problem with, you know, all of the social ills that, that create all of the contradictions when you are trying to build movement. For example, mm -hmm. sexism is very prevalent in in Puerto Rican and Latin American culture. Um, so encountering that and having to combat it and having to um, to, to work through it, uh, racism, like there's a lot of different things that get in the way of effective organizing. So I think that one of the places where I felt the most at home organizing was in the University of Puerto Rico. And over there, I think was the place where I learned 
a lot more about how to take organizing beyond, you know, what I have learned in my community. My community was a, a really small um, cosmos, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it was a... Um, it was a space where people had grown up together and people knew each other really well, but that is not how it operates necessarily when you go out in the world, right? Like you yeah. encounter a lot of people who are different and who have very different backgrounds and you cannot make assumptions about anything. And um, I think that the University of Puerto Rico, it, I mean, it, I am so proud of having done my bachelor's there because I feel like I learned so much about struggle uh, there. Sometimes here, I, I've been a mentor for many young people here in Chicago and I have seen many of my students go to, you know, private universities uh, that I'm, I'm not very familiar with, like the idea of, of private education um, and you know, seeing like small liberal arts colleges that have all of these resources. And I would go on tours of these places that I'd be like, oh my God, what yeah. is this? Mm -hmm. Because the University of Puerto Rico is nothing like that. Like yeah. I didn't yeah. have any of those resources. What I did have was an incredible infrastructure of organizers um, that taught me so much. Like I spent so much time on strike when I was in the University of Puerto Rico. Be because of issues inside of the University of Puerto Rico and issues that were not yeah. necessarily about the University of Puerto Rico when the the strike of the Puerto Rico Telephone Company happened in 1998. I was a student at the University of Puerto Rico and we, we shut down the university in solidarity with the workers of the Puerto Rico Telephone Company and we marched to the to the offices that were close to, in La Muñoz Rivera, close to the University of Puerto Rico and we spent I, we did not reopen the university until the strike was over, right? And yeah. it, and that was really important for us to stand against privatization of public services. That was really important. No, sorry, go ahead. No, that was my first encounter with neoliberalism, right? And yeah. I learned that in the University of Puerto Rico, and I learned it in practice. Like, mm -hmm. I learned what that meant in practice, the privatization of a service that belongs to the people, that works perfectly fine, that is giving the people revenue, right? It's giving the government revenue that can be used for services. Mm -hmm. And still, there was the free market that was coming in and saying, no, we can make a profit out of this, so let's just sell it, like, just yeah. sell it. And and, 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 you know, they won, they, like, Pedro Rosello ended up selling the, the Puerto Rico telephone company. And from there, you know, lots of companies enter Puerto Rico um, and it destroyed a public institution that was so productive and that had really good jobs and benefits for its workers. And, yeah. um, but, but I learned about neoliberalism there, right? Yeah. I learned about how to organize and how to do strike defense. And it was, it was the amount of learning that I feel that I got from going to the University of Puerto Rico is something that can't even be measured. I didn't mean to cut you off there briefly, but I was going to say that <laughs> it always feels like the university that it's like every time I hear about a protest happening in Puerto Rico, like I always feel like it's always like the, the, the dopest people like in those movements. I like somehow it's like centered around the university. It's like there's just something really it seems I mean, I've never been there, but it seems like there's just something really magical happening in the relationships that are built. It's it's really interesting to see. I did want to touch on like your transition from being in Puerto Rico to being in Chicago. I mean, of all places, like I look at I look at La Isla as paradise. Why come to I mean, I love Chicago, too. Don't get me wrong. But of all places to go to, why move from Puerto Rico to Chicago? 
I came to Chicago for work. I am a, my background is in theater. I am a theater artist and a theater educator. And uh, I was working as a teacher in Puerto Rico at the time. And then Law 7, all, all of my history is political. Just, yeah. just for everybody <laughs> to know. I'm also a singer songwriter. So I have been always, I've always been surrounded by art and I have mm -hmm. always uh, created art and, uh, and, and, and lived in that space. But also I have always been very political and very uh, oriented to organizing. So I was a teacher um, in the town of Añasco in the west side of the island. Um, I was a drama teacher there in a middle school. And, uh, and that's when Law 7 was passed by Governor Fortunio. When when Law 7 was passed, that was an, a, a set of austerity laws that were cutting budgets in essentially every department. It was devastating. There was about 20,000 government employees that were laid off um, during when that when Law 7 was passed mm -hmm. as a result of it. And, and a big part of it was cuts in education. Um, when the cuts in education came, uh, one of the things that that it did was that it removed the cap on the amount of students that you could have in your classroom and at this point i was already stretched out i was buying all of my materials with my own money everything like when i got my job i didn't get even a piece of chalk <laughs> to write <laughs> and i was a drama teacher right like i needed materials i needed things and I, you know i bought all of the costumes makeup everything i would go to the thrift store i would i would just and i was making 1500 dollars a month right so i was with that salary i was having to buy my own stuff but then when you tell me, okay, so now we're going to remove the cap on the amount of students. Now, now I can't even teach because right. you're telling me that you actually don't care about education. You just want me to contain a bunch of kids in a space mm -hmm. uh, until it's time to release them to their parents. And Añasco is one of the towns with the highest incidence of mental illness um, and poverty. Mm. So I was, I was dealing with, uh, with a reality that was really, really, really stressful. Um, I was there for a year and a half. I was starting to feel it. Like when they approved Law 7, I was like, this is, you, you can't, this is not sustainable. So I started looking for jobs. But as I said before, 20,000 people were laid off from the government. All of these people were looking for a job at the same time. People mm -hmm. had to leave. It was a really big exodus of people that left Puerto Rico after Law 7 was passed because there was no jobs in the island, in the archipelago. Mm -hmm. um, so I ended up looking for jobs outside of Puerto Rico and I didn't want to leave. I, I did not want to leave Puerto Rico at all. I love living there. I lived there for 30 years. Like my friends are there, my family is there. Um, I love the life that I had there, um, but I had to go. I felt like I was actually kicked out. I felt like I was evicted from my own country because I had student loans to pay, I had bills to pay, um, and I just couldn't, you know, I just couldn't yeah. stay. So I found a job with Albany Park Theater Project, which is a youth theater company uh, based here in my neighborhood in Albany Park. And uh, I applied on the last day because I didn't really want to leave. So <laughs> on the day of the deadline, I was like, you know what? I'm going to apply just to see what <laughs> happened. Yeah. And they called me like immediately. 
um i guess i was like some sort of like i don't know unicorn or something <laughs> because i think everybody that was applying was white you know like most of the theater art yeah. so um so they called me almost immediately i traveled to chicago to do one interview they i think maybe a couple of, a couple of days later they called me and offered me the position and i i quit my job and i was here in about a month and i and i stayed and i stayed here at the beginning i was like but my dad was like really upset that i was leaving mm -hmm. and he's always been incredibly supportive of me and everything i do but yeah. i think that he was feeling it right because he yeah. he lived in new york for a while and and i he was like why are you gonna go and i'm like well i don't know what else to do but mm -hmm. i'll go for a year or two and i'll come back and i remember my father saying that's not how it works mm -hmm. <laughs> And, uh, and he was right. Yeah. He, was, he was absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, we had a, we actually, before we started recording, I had mentioned to you that I interviewed someone from the London diaspora, Naomi um, Bonafu. I was talking to her and she talked about her own uh, migration story from Laila and had mentioned that you know, she was going to go for a few years and see what London had to offer. And 12 years later, she's still there. She has a kid, like she has roots now. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a lot, it's, it's a lot easier said than done. Um, you mentioned a lot of good things. I mean, I, oh. I'm fortunate that there's a lot of people, like there's a lot of Puerto Ricans here in Chicago, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I I went to for my master's degree. I actually I did it in England. I was in in Manchester, and uh, I mean there were Dope. there were very few Puerto Ricans. <laughs> so uh, I feel fortunate that I have access yeah. to that. Yeah, well, yeah, I asked, I asked, uh, I asked Naomi, you know, how many Boricuas are there in London? Like, what do you, how do you all connect? She's like, there's six of us. So it's super easy to do that compared to over 200,000 here in Chicago. We're going to take a quick pause for the cause, pero no se muevan, porque when we come back, we're going to talk to Rosana about her running for alderwoman as a democratic socialist, policy she is advocating for in Chicago City Council, her thoughts on the coup attempt at the Capitol, and a whole lot more. Stay with us. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-E-O-P-O-D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. But you said a lot of good things. So I, I do want to jump around to like Chicago Public Schools here and that system. I mean, privatization, you're working theater. Um, so I'm just going to like jump around a little bit here. First, 
just some affirmation can definitely see your love of theater um fun story i was reading this wbez article and it was an old article i was like trying to like come up with stuff to ask you obviously a lot has happened since we first talked to get you on the show so i don't want to like dive too deep into this but i thought it was like so awesome to see you as as an older woman as busy as you are coming to chicago i'm reading this article and it's about the um the theater troupe from San Juan, no, uh, y no había luz, I think they're called. So I'm like looking through this article and I'm like, I don't know what this has to do with Rosana. So I'm going down, going down, going down. And I see this picture of you all dressed up in, in the costumes, like super excited. You're glowing, reading this book. Like, then this book is huge. I will put the article in the in the show notes. But I was just like, wow, like what a, what a cool thing to see. Like, I don't know if I don't. I've never seen a picture like that of anybody in the city council that is like just so confident in themselves that they're they're fine dressing up in costume and putting on a show for people. I think I thought it was the coolest thing. So I think your love for theater definitely shines through. I did also uh well actually I don't know I mean you were you a part of that troupe or were they just in town and, and you guys had a connection? No, and... Lewis are like my really, really good friends. We went to college together, like we were in the UP in the Universidad yeah, yeah. de Puerto Rico okay. and we were a part of the traveling theater of Rosa Luisa Marquez. Mm-hmm. So we did a lot of theater of the oppressed together. We traveled to Ecuador together like twice. We um, we are very, I'm, I'm very good friends with them and we have done a lot of work together over the years. So those people are my family. So when they came and they were gonna do that, they were like, can you, can you <laughs> work with us? And the funny thing is that I ended up bringing one of my girls from the theater company Fantastic. to also play a role. <laughs> <laughs> on that particular show so it was actually really really cool that yeah. is awesome were you yeah. now were you elected as an older woman at that time or was this before that because there was no date on it the article before. it was right it was after maria okay. um so i i don't think i have been elected yet no got you okay speaking of like your time before becoming an older woman you mentioned teaching at uh pedro de Bizu campos which is a high school located uh, in Paseo Boricua, for people that are unaware. Uh, a lot of good work is done there. Um, wanted to focus on specifically your time on Paseo Boricua, because uh, I, I know you are the uh, founder of an organization called Boricua Resistance. Um, and we have two Puerto Rican cultural centers here in the city. Uh, we also have the Puerto Rican agenda. So like we mentioned earlier, 200,000 plus Boricuas in this city, of course, there's going to be uh, people starting their own organizations uh, on what they feel you know, needs to be at the forefront and organizing on behalf of the diaspora, on behalf of La Isla. Um, so just wanted to get some insight from you, you know, with, with things like the Puerto Rican Cultural Center, Puerto Rican Agenda, um, other, other Boricua groups, you know, why did you feel Boricua resistance um, needed to be founded? Uh, and what need did you feel it was filling? Is that a loaded question? <laughs> it might be. I yeah. don't know. I have no problem answering it though. <laughs> um, so to be perfectly honest, when I came here from Chicago at the very beginning, um, I feel like I I tried to uh, start organizing within the Puerto Rican community here, but it was really hard. Uh, I felt like I was, um, I felt like a lot of decisions were already made or whenever there was an issue, like decisions were like um, made even before 
mm-hmm. a meeting would have happened and then you would be there and told what to do and i and i i don't i don't roll like that like mm-hmm. <laughs> i I have organized enough in my life to know what democratic processes are and to know that I am a really smart person. Uh, and as I said before, there's a lot of sexism in, you know, in our culture in general. Um, so to me, it was really important to be able to, um, to develop organization culture where I felt like I was being taken seriously and, um, but but beyond that, the main call, what what founded Chicago Boricua Resistance was PROMESA. Mm. When PROMESA was being discussed at the very early stages of that discussion, when we started seeing the proposal, even before it passed, before it went into deliberation, we started looking at PROMESA and we were very alarmed and we were not seeing anybody else that was like sounding the alarm. This is bad. Mm-hmm. And we thought that it was really important to start educating and, and sharing the information. This is what's going to happen if this is passed. And we really wanted to mobilize around it. Um, so we started hosting some events and, you know, going around and just telling people what was going on. And organically, some people, mostly people who were raised in Puerto Rico, which was really mm-hmm. interesting to me, yeah. mostly people who had experience, the, the experience of being born and raised in Puerto Rico and then coming here sort of later in life, um, started sort of coming around with the understanding, oh, I know exactly what, what is happening and how this is going to impact the people of Puerto Rico, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, in, that, in that process, we ended up, like learning a lot about about promesa and and doing a lot of campaigning around it um but yeah i would say that i didn't feel particularly welcome at the mm-hmm. beginning when i first got here in mm-hmm. i think this was 2009 yeah um later on like i started just you know inhabiting this but like just showing up and inhabiting the space more and i just sort of made my own space mm-hmm. in you know, in the community. Yeah. And I have really good relationships with like everybody at uh, Paseo. Um, but but to me, the, the organizing, the political organizing space was something that was um, was important to to create a culture where where people like me felt valued and welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to talk about things in a political way that is very left, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like I am a socialist. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I don't shy away from saying that I am a socialist and I am at odds a lot of times with the Democrats, a lot of times. Yep. <laughs> and I am never scared to say that. And I am never going to be scared of saying that. Right. Yeah. So but but again, I am also going to show up whenever my people need me and whenever, you know, Puerto Rico needs whatever Puerto Rico needs. And I am in very close communication with Puerto Rico all the time. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. so I guess that's the, that's the story. Yeah. You can add that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think you, I think you, you were, you were dropping some truth bombs there. You know, I think that's, I think there's a lot to be said about hospitality and giving everybody a seat at the table and, that's not something that's always prevalent, especially for people that call a new place home. You know, how do we welcome? How do we welcome the stranger? How do we welcome people that are part of our own culture? Um, you know, I, 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 that's something that I remember seeing. I mean, even when I 
entered into the professional world with in a lot of groups that I felt like I'd be simpatico with, like, okay, we're all going to vibe and we're going to be on the same page and we're all going to have this like, you know, uh, collaborative love fest and like really like we're snapping our fingers and we're going to like put our, our conversations into action. And I think a lot of times what happened, well, at least what I experienced was, you know, I'd present an idea and was told something like, well, this is the way we've always done it. Or, <laughs> you know, well, we're, we're actually going to move in this direction. And you almost feel like you're talking to a brick wall. Um, does it really matter you're, if you're present there? Are you just a body that exists for someone to point you in the direction and you follow those orders? Um, so I think that's a very, I think that comes from a very real place. Speaking of feeling a need, you did mention you were a socialist, one of six, I believe, in the Chicago City Council that are DSA, or is it five now? Uh, who knows? <laughs> okay. <laughs> TBD, TBD. So, uh, <laughs> um, so uh, a substantial amount. We started with a friend of the show, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, who's been on, um, and he talked about why he, he aligns with DSA. Uh, I'd love to hear why you decided to run for alder for alder person. You mentioned privatization. Um, uh, I think we've seen that a lot in Chicago with things like our parking meters. But um, you know that is something that we sold we sold the rights off to that and lost out on billions billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, so just questioning, you know, what would happen if there was a socialist running things and coming into running. Uh, government policy with that mindset. So I'm I very much align with DSA. Uh, not afraid to say that either. Um, I love it when you call out Democrats because I think a lot of times it's just lip service. Uh, a lot of times I think they try to play identity politics as a way to give themselves a badge of honor to say like, look, we're on the right side of justice, but don't actually enact that in the policy they present. Um, but enough about my views. Um, you know, why did you decide to run as, as a older woman? This was in May, 2018, you challenged incumbent Deb Mel, just for everybody listening. Yes. Um, okay. So I'll tell you first why I ran for office and then why I ran as a socialist. Yeah. So I know I asked you another loaded question. <laughs> I jump around way too much though. So yeah. No, know, it's, it's cool. It's cool. Yeah. And I, I can actually address both of those things probably okay. like very, very closely. Um, so I was asked to run by um, some of the people that I have organized with. Um, In 2015, there was a teacher in my community who ran for office. As I said before, I was a a theater director and mentor for a youth theater company in my community. Um, The youth theater company was children of the neighborhood, mostly, um, mostly Latino kids in the neighborhood. Um, and they, many of them went to the neighborhood school. Um, so Tim Megan was a teacher at that point at Roosevelt high school, which is my only, uh, high school here in the, in, in the 33rd ward. And he was a history teacher and he was a very progressive history teacher. And he ran in a, on a platform that was, you know, alderman for the 99%. And he was, uh, very adamant in, um, in funding public schools in making sure that we work against privatization. Uh, it was a, a really progressive platform and I decided to support him. And a lot of my kids loved him because he was his teacher. So it was like, you know, I, I ended up working in his campaign and I, you know, I, we devoted a lot of, of time um, trying to get him elected. And uh, we lost, uh, but it was like 17 votes away from a runoff. 
which was crazy wow. because we didn't we, i have never organized at an electoral level ever mm. in my life if to me elections were like this other thing yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have always i have always organized politically around campaigns but electorally never so um we didn't know what we were doing I, i'm not gonna say we didn't know what we were doing we have never done it before we were learning how to do electoral work mm-hmm. um on our own essentially we didn't have any money but somehow we ended up getting to 17 votes away from a runoff so Sounds we decided familiar. we decided to uh to to found you know an organization um called 33rd working families and we organized for four years in the community around immigration around uh, education and around housing all of those issues and you know we would knock on doors and try to put things on like issues on ballots like rent control for example that's that's a good example of the kind of campaign that we were running and we would knock on doors and talk to people about rent control and why it's important that we are able to have rent control um we're lifting the ban, you know, like we, we put the, the issue of the moratorium on charter schools um, on the ballot as well. And, you know, we would just go and have conversations with people and organize. And then in terms of immigration, we were doing a lot of immigration support. We had uh, the Albany Park Defense Network in the community. So we were working very closely with them and we would do a lot of um, uh, solidarity or uh, actions and mutual aid around immigration we would go with people that had cases and you know have a phone tree and be like somebody has a hearing everybody needs to show up and people will show up even if you didn't know who this person was but you just need to show up because we because we need to protect our neighbors right yeah. so um and you know try to find legal aid for people that had immigration cases so doing that work we were able to build a base um and we ended up challenging again i was asked to run uh because you know i had developed very strong roots in the community i had relationships with families i am an afro latina living in this community um i speak spanish uh i can definitely relate to a lot of the issues that immigrants have even though i i have a u.s citizenship the the cultural immigration is a real thing, right? Um, So I ended up saying yes. I said no, I don't know how many times, like 25 times, like people kept saying, because one person told me, and then I think that person started telling other people, Like yeah, you should run. We gotta get and together. And then people just kept coming and said, yeah. like, you should run. And I'm like, why is everybody telling me that I need to run? You run. <laughs> Nothing like peer pressure. <laughs> But then eventually I realized that if I wanted uh, a woman of color, yeah. a, a, a radical woman of color to be in that seat, I was going to have to do it myself because there was nobody else. So I ended up saying yes. And it was the hardest thing, like besides migrating from Puerto Rico um, and, and having a baby, this is the hardest thing that mm-hmm. I have ever done in my life. It is, it is, it is. <laughs> it is so hard. <laughs> yeah. So would you um, say it, would you say it's everything you expected being an older person? Oh, I had no idea huh. what what I no, I had no idea how comprehensive this job is. Like most elected officials are lawmakers and that's what they are and that's mm-hmm. it. 
but other men are lawmakers and also have a ward to tend to. So you are dealing with potholes and garbage cans at the same time that you're trying to create treatment, not trauma, like ordinance, right? And so you're trying to understand law, you're trying to navigate community organizations and their issues. It's a lot, it's, it, it, it is a really big job. Um, so I ended up saying yes, because I thought that it, it would be really important to for people like us who are fighting for justice and who are fighting for a, a more equal uh, a world with more equity, right? Um, to have institutional power because we usually don't have that, right? Like our power is the power of the people and, and that's great. And we can achieve a lot by, you know, exercising pressure on elected officials. But what if we get institutional power for ourselves and bring these ideas and push for them unapologetically in, in the places where there's power and then throw some of that, you know, mm -hmm. power out the window for people to 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 access it. Right. And, and I, I think I think that was the, the purpose. And I think that we are fulfilling that promise. Um, and I'm really proud of that. And and it's also the reason why I ran as a socialist as well. And I didn't want to shy away from that. I feel like I have been a socialist. I grew up among people who call themselves socialists. And those were the people that were constantly, consistently fighting for the benefit of the many. Hmm. Those were the people. And that's that's what I grew up around. Um, and, and, and that's what I learned. Yeah. So to me, socialist politics is about making sure that everybody is okay. Mm -hmm. And the way that we do that is making sure that the government is providing the services and resources that people need to be okay. And in order to do that, we need to fund those, right? And in order to fund that, we need to tax the rich. <laughs> yep. so. And enough of these regressive tax measurements. Like what, is, why, 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 I mean, I know you came out against the property tax or the, um, the city budget yeah, that was put okay. forward by the mayor because we're looking at an increase in property taxes every year. I mean, who does that? A rich person, that's pennies to them. Uh, but for working class people, working poor, and that could that could cut, that could carry dire consequences. In a pandemic, in when a pandemic. so many people have lost their jobs right. or their the hours have been caught, you know, right. like yeah, it, it 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 and it is it, there's always this resistance to talk about taxing the rich and mm -hmm. to and it, it is incredible what what people that are wealthy get away with while other people suffer so much and we shouldn't live in a world that is like that so yeah. it was important to me to make sure that 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 was the message that we were putting out out there and i mean i didn't know if we were going to win we were we were running to win mm -hmm. but we didn't know that we were going to win um, but we did. And, and now this is the message that we're bringing forward. No, for sure. Oh, and, and for people that are, are unaware, I mean, you, you basically through your campaign toppled a dynasty here in Chicago. Uh, you challenged incumbent Deb Mel, whose family had, uh, control over that ward for about 44 years, if not more. Um, so what a great example to show, like if people see something that they don't like, or they see that a need is not being filled. I and mean, everybody has the, the capability. I mean, there's other things that exist in running and collecting petitions that exist in, in our political system, but um, the pathway is there. Um, so it's really it was really cool to see you actually uh, come out on the on the winning side of that campaign. Could you break down exactly what is the crisis assistance helping out our helping out on our streets, helping out on the streets, crisis <laughs> assistance helping out on the streets? Um, what's the, what, how does that, what, what is that framework? The idea is that you don't need to, to send police to every crisis that there is, but police is the only 
tool that we have to respond at the moment. So crisis mobile units would go, and these are vehicles that are equipped with a mental health care professional and an EMT, and, and they would go and address any situation that is non-violent, non-life-threatening, that is associated to mental health or minor things. There are several programs that now are, are even coming out for shoplifting. And they are considering shoplifting something that, you know, in cases in which it's not a robbery, right? Like there's no weapon. Uh, those, those are crimes of survival. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and they don't. We shouldn't be processing people through the criminal justice system when people are just trying to survive. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that you actually use the right tools to address the the right um, the the situations, right? And um, so Cahoots focuses on using mental health care professionals and EMTs to to go around town on a uh, on a vehicle and addressing those and it's a 24-hour um re response and it's what we're trying to do from chicago but using the the mental health clinics mm. well, speaking of which, which cahoots uses cahoots uses white bird clinic which is a community mental health clinic um which is one of the reasons why we said okay chicago already has a public mental health care system we still have five of our mental health clinics open after Daily and Ram close uh, all the rest. We used to have 19. Yeah. We're down to five. Mm -hmm. um, we still can use those, right? And, and, and we can expand the services and make mental health services more accessible to communities um, if you are being able to go to those communities and find the people who need the most help right there, right mm -hmm. on the street. Um, so we're very committed to this idea. We're going to continue to push for it. And the idea was in, in this particular case, the idea was to take money from the police department and reallocate it so that we could have a citywide crisis response system that is non-law enforcement based. Um, speaking of prosecuting people, uh, we're recording this on January 7th. Yesterday, January 6th, will go down in infamy as uh, one of the most disgusting moments in our country's history. Now, I know on this day, man, like, why did they have to do that on Three Kings Day? I hear you. I mean, that, that definitely was not a gift anybody wanted to see um, or get. Um, I, I, I know we have to go in a little bit. And I know we, we, we try to focus on highlighting Puerto Rican stories here. And you are elected official at the local level. So it's not like you have the authority at the federal level to enact any change. Um, but, um, so I don't wanna to put too much on your shoulders with this question, but you know, what were some of your thoughts yesterday about that coup, that coup attempt, that insurrection, um, especially considering what we saw here in Chicago and around the United States and how protesters were treated um, during that um, period of civil unrest. I mean, I think we're still in a period of civil unrest, but you know, looking at the differences and how authorities, um, how politicians, how media um, reacted to what was happening yesterday compared to how people were reacting to uh, the protests that erupted out of uh, the, George, the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many other people of color. Puerto Ricans have known who Donald Trump is for a very long time, and we will mm -hmm. never forget the response of Donald Trump to Hurricane Maria. Uh, we, will, we will never forget how Puerto Ricans were treated. We know that Donald Trump came in in a populist platform that was trying to gain support from people who are racist. Um, 
uh, and bank on that and capitalize on that hate and make it even harder and stronger. And that's why he, that's what he did, his whole presidency. And we all said it. Mm -hmm. And we said that he was a threat and that he was um, uh, instigating fascism. And that's exactly what we saw yesterday. We saw fascist people who were trying to disrupt a democratic um, process uh violently uh attack the house of the people right mm -hmm. um i was i am living in a very crazy like so, sort of state where you sort of like are not surprised but you're still like incredibly outraged right like right. we knew that this could happen he had been telling he had been telling uh his people to go to dc on that day for for a long time, everybody knew that they were going to show up. We saw what happened when, with Kyle Rittenhouse, for example. There is no reason why there shouldn't have been preparation in order to meet these people just like they did with Black Lives Matter protests all around the nation. Mm -hmm. We saw what happened in Chicago with, with bridges lifted and the streets and sands vehicles blocking every exit of the highway into the center of the, they, they protected the center of Chicago right away. Mm -hmm. We didn't see that same deployment of resources for DC and, and, and it, it feels like they were allowed in. And that is yeah. really scary. That's a really scary thing to think about that these people enacted as a pseudo coup and 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 they haven't even gotten a slap in the wrist. People right. were chilling in their hotel like like nothing. I just mm -hmm. went and stormed into the Capitol building and now I'm here in the lobby of this hotel sipping my drink and right. everything is fine. And doing and media course, interviews and doing me yeah. media interviews as well. Like nothing. And then the FBI is out here saying that they're trying to like like get information what yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's all out there right so right. yes it definitely is the result of white supremacy uh it's it's white supremacy in action i'm not even mm. gonna call it white privilege this is white supremacy yeah. and uh and and i think that it's going to be i know that i am an elected you know at a very local level but we definitely want to be um demanding from our elected officials at higher levels first of all the impeachment of donald trump it needs to happen he needs to go um and and i think that it wouldn't be okay for him to leave office as if this does did not happen because mm -hmm. um, we have seen what what he has done in the past yeah. and and i think that we need to continue to fight against fascism and one of the ways in which we do that is making sure that people have the resources that they need to survive um, and to thrive because when there is scarcity and when people are not treated like humans, this is what's going to happen as well. Um, I am in no way excusing, of course, what happened and it, it's deeply racist and these people are fascist, but, um, but, but I do believe that it, that, that there is a lot of work to do in order for us to be able to make uh, conditions better for everybody. And, and that can help curve some of what is happening. There is a racism that you can't deny, you know, that is found yeah. that in which this country was founded. Um, but, um, but I do think that there's a lot of work to do in both ends.
Yeah, no, totally. And you look at some of the pictures and videos online. Um, I mean, I, I was just glued to my screen, to my Twitter feed. You know, you saw uh, you saw how the National Guard was ready when the BLM protests were happening compared to maybe a handful of Capitol Police around. I saw videos of Capitol Police opening the gates, allowing uh, people that were there that were trying to break into to the Capitol. Um, I saw, I saw Capitol police taking photos with people that were creating, were, were like you said, in a pseudo coup. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I mean, I was so frustrated watching this Rosana because you see how it's talked about in the media and it took forever for them to, for anybody to say domestic terrorism, for anybody to say that it was, even rioters, it was like protesters, the protesters are doing this. They're breaking the windows. They're on the house floor. They were, they were explosives. Yeah, Stop. there's pipe bombs. I mean, four people died. No, it, it is. I, I was actually watching a clip from Fox News and, mm-hmm. I, and they were like, well, you know, this has been mostly peaceful. If you like take away the fact that they, you know, broke into the Capitol, there was not like real damage. And, you know, except for for the woman who died. And I'm, I'm like, are you listening to yourself? Right. What? Right. So it, I, I think I think it's going to be really important for for us to um to not buy into the democracy prevailed narrative mm-hmm. and that, okay, we, you know, everything is going to be okay. Biden is here. The Democrats are taking over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I I don't think that we can trust that that is the case. I think that the Democrats, uh, because of, of the space in which we're in right now, I mean, Donald Trump got a lot of votes. So definitely these people are out there, right? Yeah. Like, and they're not going away. And the, and the Democratic Party is going to continue to move right whenever it feels like that's where it needs to go in order to remain in power, right? Mm-hmm. And that's dangerous. And, uh, and, and we need to be organized. Yeah. We have seen, like, they are not playing around. They are not playing around. They told us. They have right. told us multiple Months. times years they have told us so many times that they are not playing around Mm -hmm. um so it is very important that we can protect each other um that we have the 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 networks and the structures in order to be able to protect one another to defend ourselves and um and and to make sure that we are advocating for the policies that are going to benefit the vast majority of people okay rosana rapid fire questions from our audience so they don't rip my head off i have to i have to share these i have to be accountable uh, super quick ones though. Uh, favorite uh, favorite Puerto Rican restaurant to eat in Chicago? Oh wow, you're you're gonna get me in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I have to, I have to, I have Casa Yari, which is half, and and La Bruquena. Yeah. La Bruquena, okay, okay. And Casa Yari is great. Yari is so good too. You're like, <laughs> I know that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Um, okay, next question. Uh, why do you change your Twitter profile picture so much? Are you, are you, <laughs> somebody's looking at me, somebody's watching me. I don't know, because I can. <laughs> uh, okay, that's great. Um, okay, uh, what are you reading, watching, obsessed with right now? Ideally something connected to Puerto Rican culture, but not necessary. You know, Puerto Ricans are in love, you know, have, can have interest outside of La Ila and Puerto Rican culture, but what's something you're, I- you're obsessed with? I just, just, just got this. I just got the Clemente, um, <laughs> the passion and grace of baseball last hero. So this is my new companion. Um, is that new? Uh, is that a new book? 
It's not. I oh. think it's from like 2017, maybe 2018. I'm really excited about it, and yeah. I just started reading it. Um, so yes, I am obsessed with that. I just finished watching um, Good Lord Bird, and I loved it so much. It's the John Brown uh, mm. series uh, and Small Acts. I think it's, I'm going to say that it's on Prime. Uh, the first one is called Mangrove. You need to watch it. You need to. It's so, 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 so good. I'm writing this down. Uh, so whoever hasn't watched Small Axe yet, it's a set of uh, several movies. Um, oh, my God. It's so beautifully shot. It's, it's beautiful. Make sure that, that you check it out. I'm writing it down. And I'm going to get that Clemente book, too. I'm going to order that. Um, okay. So last question. Um, how can people keep up with you? Social media, website, whether that's political accounts, government accounts, you know, how can people keep up with you? So on Twitter, I am Rosana433. I'm going to keep changing my, my picture now, <laughs> no more than I, than I was. Because <laughs> I know somebody's watching me. Um, <laughs> um, and then on Facebook, if for my official page is, um, uh, 33rd Ward Alderman Rosana Rodriguez uh, Sanchez and um, and Rosana Rodriguez for my political Facebook uh, account and then uh, you can go to Rosana for 33 and that's our website and you can see you know what we're up to there um, 33rdward.org is our our website for the ward and you can see everything that we're up to there at the official level too um, I, I try to stay, you know, out there as much as I can. Uh, so anything, you can, if you go to our Aldermanic Facebook page, you can see our live there. I have a live that I do usually every week, and you can see a lot of the discussions that we have been having around a lot of, a lot of different issues. Awesome. Alderwoman of the 33rd Ward, Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez, thank you so much for being on the Paseo Podcast today. Thank you for having me. Okay. Hasta luego. Thanks to 33rd Ward Alderwoman Rosana Rodriguez-Sanchez for being on the show today. Next week, we're going to have the hosts of Triad of the Force. It's a Star Wars podcast, so looking forward to having that group on. Uh, we actually moved them to next week after this past week's events. After that, we're going to have the founder of the media outlet, Latino Rebels, and uh, co-host of the podcast In the Thick, Julio Ricardo Varela, on the show. Um, as a reminder, you can watch our interview with Rosana on our YouTube channel this Monday. Just type in Basel Podcast and we should pop up. Also, if you want to pitch a story idea, nominate yourself or someone else for an interview, we'd love to hear from you. Um, even if you're just sharing a new story you'd like us to discuss in the show. Um, but you can do all that by visiting our website, baselmedia.org. See you next week. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, baseomedia.org, emailing us at baseopodcast at gmail.com, and following us at baseopodcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode, and see you next week. Cuídate.